Morning all. You can have a seat. You're the pastor, so you can call the word whatever you like. That's fine. Hey, what a good morning we've had so far. I thought the offering message was particularly spectacular. (laughs) That was my wife, in case you didn't make the connection. Really happy to be speaking this morning, and as Pastor Jack mentioned, this is a word that I shared in December, so apologies to those who are hearing it again. Hopefully you might hear something new today. There was a story going around for a while about a pastor that started a new church and just preached the same message week after week after week. After about a month, the church challenged him on it and said, what are you doing? He said, well, when you start living it, I'll stop preaching it. So, you know, put this into action and you'll, you'll never have to hear it again. Actually, my two older boys, they still, they're still young enough that they like to hear their dad preach. You know, I think I'm still their hero anyway. They were, they were disappointed not to be here today until they found out I was just preaching the same thing again. So they're away on youth camp at the moment. Who's got some kids at youth camp at the moment? They're hopefully coming home safe and sound today. <laughs> Let me just say that one of the reasons why we felt like this was our church nearly three years ago now was because of the youth ministry. Just so important that young people are discipled in a youth ministry. So a shout out to the team. But some of my best memories growing up in church were at youth camps. Can anyone identify with that? Like I was talking to Lauren about when a war between the boys and the girls at a youth camp culminated in us filling water balloons with flour and fish oil. I think we won that battle, but if the goal of young men is to get young women to like them, we lost that war. (laughs) In fact, it's amazing I ever got married at all. Or when in Brisbane, one time our youth leaders put seven of us in the back of their van and drove us up Mount Tambourine for a youth outing. And when I say in the back of the van, not on seats in the back of the van, just on the floor in the back of the van. And so I was sitting against, leaning against the back door and someone must have bumped me because I bumped the handle and the door flew up and open and in a second I was hanging out of the back of the van with my hands scraping along the road before I fell out completely. Fortunately we were going up a mountain so we weren't going too fast but I had to go back to church and tell mum and dad that I've fallen out of the back of a van at youth. This is about 30 years ago, so hopefully, hopefully um, safety and, and, and duty of care have come a long way since then. Well, our kids will come back safely today, I prophesy. <laughs> you can probably tell from these stories that I've got a long history of, of belief in God. Growing up in church, I was baptised in the bathtub at our home group when I was five. I think I spoke in tongues at around the same time. Well, that's what my mum says anyway. I grew up in kids' church, youth And eventually I felt a call to go and study theology and work at a Bible college, which I've now done for the last uh, 10 or 15 years. So I've really never known anything other than belief in God throughout my life. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that there haven't been times of questioning or moments where I've had to choose for myself faith over doubt. I think studies are fantastic, a wonderful thing, but it asks you to question, it asks you to think critically and there have been times where I've had to say, no, I choose faith and I choose to believe in the God who I know to be true. I wonder if you've ever had a crisis of belief or maybe not even a crisis but just a time when you found yourself questioning or doubting or just wondering about your faith. 
for me, even just five years ago, I can remember a time when I was really wrestling with the... The best way I can describe it is the rationality of my faith. I don't think I ever doubted God, but I just was wondering whether my belief in God was logical and a place that I would have come to on my own if I hadn't have grown up in church with my parents always instilling in me belief in God. I can remember sitting on a plane actually going to the US, so it was a long trip, and I just came across a book called A Public God, which was about natural theology, the evidence that we can see for God in the world around us. And it was one of those providential moments where God brought, I think, just the right book across my path at just the right time to speak to my heart. And it strengthened my confidence that my belief in God was rational, was reasonable, and not just because it was something that I'd always been brought up believing. And I think even if we don't talk about them, maybe it's embarrassing, we don't want to seem like we don't have faith or we don't believe in God, but I think even if we don't talk about these moments, all of us have these times when our beliefs are questioned or challenged. And as Pastor Jack mentioned, I don't think the society or the social context in which we live right now helps very much at all. You just need to look at the trends and the the data to know that attitudes towards Christian belief are changing rapidly. And I think our society is becoming decidedly less Christian all the time. The 2021 census data, I like data, it's part of my job. The 2021 census data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics came out last year. And from 1971 to 2021, so that's a 50-year time span, the percentage of people identifying as Christians changed from 87% in 1971 down to 43% now. Just think about that. If you live in a society where 87% of people say that they're Christian, you feel like you're part of the mainstream. You're part of the majority. If you're in a room of 10 people, probably eight of them, plus you, are going to say that they're Christian. But you think about that now, 87% in 1971 down to 43% in 2021. That's a big change to the point now where less than half of Australians now call themselves Christian. You can speculate as to why. Maybe in 1971 there were lots of nominal Christians or people just thought, well, if I don't know what to put, I'll just put Christian. That was the default position. But whatever the case, I think it's clear that Christian belief is now no longer the default position of our society, 43% down from 87%. I think there's also no shortage of examples of people whose Christianity has made their life far more difficult I don't know if you follow the news. I do. I like it. I enjoy it. You would have heard about Andrew Thorburn, who was cancelled as the CEO of the Essendon Football Club after just 24 hours because of his association with the church. He released a statement afterwards which said, Today it became clear to me that my personal Christian faith is not tolerated or permitted in the public square, at least by some and perhaps by many. I think about the laws recently passed in Victoria that make it illegal to pray for or counsel someone, even at their request, over issues of sexuality and identity. Someone called this law one of the most anti-religious laws in the Western world. But again, the idea is the same. Christian values, Christian views, Christian beliefs are no longer the dominant viewpoint of the society in which we live. Now, let me say up front, as Pastor Jack said earlier, I don't think we need to be defensive about that. 
If you look throughout history, the church has done its best work when it's been on the margins, when it's been persecuted, when it's been in the minority. So that's not something that we need to be defensive about. And what a great mission field when the majority of people now that we're going to come into contact with on a regular basis probably don't know Jesus. But back to this question of a crisis of belief. The reality is that because of all of these societal, contextual things, I think belief in God is continually being challenged. And I've got to say, I don't think it's going to get any easier. I can't see, at least in the, in the near future, that suddenly our beliefs are going to become the mainstream, going to become the majority again. I think they're going to be continually challenged, and not just by late uh, atheists or vocal secularists or anything like that, but just, I think, by regular people who probably see our beliefs as just a quaint thing in the past. You, know, you might hear someone say, oh, well, we've progressed beyond that, or no one really still believes that anymore. And I think that's the attitude that we can expect to encounter more and more. So within that context, and we spoke about a courage culture all year, I wanted to speak today about a c- courage to believe, courage to believe. Do we need that? Do we really need courage to believe, you might ask? Well, I think we do. And that reality, that, the fact that we need courage to believe, that's not a new thing. If you want to find a church that lived on the margins and was persecuted and had to stand up for what they believe, you don't need to look any further than the New Testament church. They existed and thrived in the midst of persecution and marginalisation. They needed courage to believe. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. Geez, quarrels in the church, that sounds like a new thing. Some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos or I follow Peter or I follow only Christ. So if you're interested, here's an early example of identity politics. There's nothing new under the sun, as they say. People were dividing themselves into groups and then aligning their identity with various leaders. Apollos, for example, was a great communicator, really dynamic, trained in the art of rhetoric and very good at at, uh, convincing people. Whereas Paul, on the other hand, most believe, was a bit more dour, a bit less inspiring, a great writer, but not a great communicator in person. And so you had groups in the church aligning themselves with various leaders who they thought were worthy of their respect. Let me tell you, dividing into identity groups and then arguing with each other probably never ends well. Show me one good thing that's come out of identity politics. But Paul said, be of one mind united in thought and purpose. And it reminds me of Galatians 3.28. We probably all know the scripture. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And so our primary identity, the thing that defines us, should always be our identity in Jesus Christ. Amen? In verse 13, Paul says, Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, 
For now, no one can say they were baptized in my name. And then he remembers, oh yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, but I don't remember baptizing anyone else. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news and not with clever speech for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. May we never let clever speech lead us into doubt or a crisis of faith and away from the good news and the power of the cross. In verse 18, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. My first point is this. Remember, courage to believe. Belief requires courage because it will always look foolish to the world. Belief requires courage because it will always look foolish to the world. And it actually takes courage to hold on to something that the society we live in considers to be foolish. But we don't take our cues from them. I'm sure most of you didn't come to belief because of philosophy or scholarship or debate but because of an encounter with Jesus Christ. When you hear people talk about their stories of conversion, most of us believed, I think, because God encountered us when we needed him or because we experienced the power and the presence of God and we know that we know that we know that he's real. Very rarely do I hear someone say, well, you know, I believing God just made logical sense to me at the time, so I just decided to start believing. More often, there's something much deeper at work. I think the power of the cross rather than the wisdom of the wise. John Wesley, who many of you will know, at least as a historical figure, tells, he tells this story about his salvation, and hopefully it will come up on the screen. In the evening, he says, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preference to the epistle to the Romans. If we were to survey the room, I doubt many people came to salvation by reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. But there you go. God can use anything. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, for salvation and assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Think about that. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Now, some of you may have had that sense of encounter, which is what brought you to salvation in the first place. But we've got to remember that not everyone has had that experience yet. I, I guess if you believe the statistics, for only 43% of our society has and 57% haven't. And so that, that belief that for us is based on an encounter will always seem to be foolish to those who are headed for destruction. That's why we need courage to believe. I told this story last time as well. I don't know if you read the the comments in news stories. So, you know, there's a story, then everyone puts their two cents worth in at the end. You really shouldn't read those comments if you don't want to become wildly depressed about the state of the world. But sometimes, for example, when there's a story to do with Christianity, someone will make a comment ridiculing Christians for believing in a magic sky fairy or something like that. Uh, Our belief will always be foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. 
So even if we know that we know that we know, it still takes courage to hold on to that belief in the face of a society that, be- that sees that belief as foolishness. Belief requires courage because it will always look foolish to the world. Then in verse 21, since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. The world would never know him through human wisdom. My second point is this. Belief requires courage because it has to start with faith. The world will never know God through human wisdom, which means the only way we can come to know God is by faith. You know, if there really was a God who's all-powerful, all-knowing, so far beyond our comprehension, will we actually expect to be able to understand that God with our limited human minds and our limited human understanding? So the idea that somehow we'll only believe God when we come to understand him, you know, I'll come to beliefs through understanding, it's just ludicrous. You know, we can't understand God with our limited human minds. And I think certainty and understanding only comes after belief. St. Augustine said this, and again, hopefully it will come up. Seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. And I think that's so profound and so true. Belief comes first, then understanding follows belief. For a long time, it was thought that our, our feelings followed our thinking, So we would think first, we would analyse something, we'd come to a conclusion, then we would decide how we feel about that. I think the world would be wonderfully calm and rational if that was the case. But it's pretty clear now that humans have feelings and intuitions that come even before we've thought about something. We have an emotive response even before we've had time to think and analyse. And then what's interesting is we have an instinctual reaction to something and then Our minds create ways of thinking to justify that reaction. This is proven, you know, we we self-justify. We feel something, we have a reaction, and then we come up with ways of thinking to justify that reaction. Let me give you an example. Not, don't want to be political, but it's easy. If you always vote Labor, for example, then a Liberal Prime Minister gets up and starts talking, it's likely that your first reaction or your, your intuition will be negative, doesn't matter necessarily what's being said. There's just an in, instinctive, intuitive reaction to that. You'll be more inclined to disagree with what's being said even before you've thought it through and then you think it through and you find a way to justify that reaction. So it's been proven that your mind finds logical reasons to disagree in order to support your emotive response. I think we're wonderfully complex creatures, us humans. But I think the same is generally true of belief in God. Once you've had an encounter with God that leads you to belief, of course your mind's then much more open about what God wants to reveal to you. The encounter comes first, creates the space for then your intuitive, emotive reaction to God to be openness and willingness to hear from God. But if your first reaction when you hear about God is just cynicism or scepticism, then of course it's no surprise that your mind is also going to be closed to what God might want to reveal to you. That's, by the way, why the Holy Spirit needs to clear the way for us whenever we're talking about evangelism and missions. We're not likely to convince people on the basis of a great argument. We'll convince them through the power of the Holy Spirit. But I think that's why the message of the cross will always be foolishness to those headed 
for destruction. Belief comes first and then understanding. Seek not to understand that you may believe, but rather believe that you may understand. And I think that initial belief can only come by faith, and it's faith even when we don't have that full understanding of our belief. So what have we discovered so far? Belief requires courage because it will always seem like foolishness to the world and then belief requires courage because it always has to start with faith. Verse 22, 1 Corinthians 1. Paul goes on to say, It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. This is the message of the, of the gospel. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. So my, my final point, point three, is this. Belief requires courage because the gospel message is offensive. I think just like the Jews and the Gentiles in the day of the New Testament church, people are either offended or they think that we're talking nonsense. What's so offensive about this gospel message that we believe in? I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. Everyone knows C.S. Lewis for the Chronicles of Narnia, but he wrote a lot of other books as well. Mere Christianity, one of my favourite books. I love the way he puts it here. It's a bit complex, but follow along with me. If there does exist an absolute goodness, God, it must hate most of what we do. This is the terrible fix we are in. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, if there's no God, then it, of course in the end all our efforts are in the long run hopeless. But if it is, then we are making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day and are not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow. And so our case is hopeless again. God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror, the thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They are still only playing with religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger according to the way you react to it, and we have reacted the wrong way. So why is the gospel message offensive? Well, let me summarise that, that quote from C.S. Lewis. Number one, if God is absolutely good, he doesn't like a lot of what we do. Number two, despite our best efforts, we fail every day. Number three, we're not likely to do any better tomorrow. And number four, God is either the comfort or the supreme terror, depending on how we respond to him. You know, we already live in a world where everyone gets offended by everything. We know that's the case. Words of violence, as, as, the, as the theory goes now, even thinking the wrong way can get you cancelled. So it's, is it any surprise, really, that people are offended by the gospel? When we make a stand and say, this is what we believe, this is the way that we should live your life, this is what's required for salvation, is it any surprise that that's offensive to people? I mean, that was happening back in the New Testament. What did Paul say? The Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. So is it any surprise that that's still happening now? Belief requires courage because the gospel message is offensive. Put the picture up on the screen. This is just a bit of fun. Don't get offended by it if you can avoid it. The gospel message says to someone, you're not good enough on your own. 
You need forgiveness and salvation. You need to stop living by your own standard and be accountable to a higher standard. And I think that's an offensive message in a society where it says, well, just living according to your authentic self is the gold standard. And we're saying, don't measure yourself against what you think is your authentic self. Measure yourself against the standard that God has set for all of humanity. Well, why do, so why do we need courage to believe? I think I said it earlier, our society is becoming less Christian. Our beliefs are being challenged and are likely to continue to be challenged. We have to build that courage within ourselves that the belief we hold is not some quaint relic of the past, but it's something that can change people's lives. It's something that can make a real difference in our society and it's worth holding on to. It's worth having courage for. Why do we need courage to believe? Belief requires courage because it looks foolish to the world. Belief requires courage because it always has to start with faith. And belief requires courage because the gospel message is offensive. I'll ask the worship team to come back. As they do, we might ask ourselves this question, well, why do we bother? (laughs) If it requires this much courage to believe and if we're increasingly going to be persecuted and challenged for that belief and if we live in a society that thinks we're just foolish and if we're trying to preach an offensive message in that society that thinks that we're foolish, someone might ask the question, well, why bother? Well, I think the fact that you're here means you've probably answered that question for yourself. But let's finish with 1 Corinthians 10.24 and then verse 30. Sorry, 1.24 and verse 30. But to those who are called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. God has united you and me with Christ Jesus for our benefit. God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy and he freed us from sin. Why do we need courage to believe? Why do we bother? Well, we believe in the gospel as the very power and wisdom of God. That's a belief that's worth having courage for. And because of that belief, we've been united with Christ Jesus, been made right with God, been made pure and holy and freed from sin. So we believe, or I hope we do. But as our nation becomes less Christian, I think we're once again finding ourselves on the outer where our belief can seem foolish or offensive. But that's not meant to be discouraging. Not at all, in fact. As I said earlier, the greatest periods of growth and flourishing in the history of the church have often been in the face of great persecution. But what we need in that moment is we need courage. We need courage to believe, even when that belief looks like foolishness or relies just on our faith or is offensive to those who don't believe. Why don't you stand with me and we're going to pray. Just close your eyes, open your heart to the Spirit. Ask for him to speak courage into your heart right now, courage to believe. Lord, we thank you for this belief that we hold so dear. We thank you for uniting us with Jesus Christ because of this belief, for making us right, for giving us a way to salvation. Lord, help us to have courage to believe. 
help us to have courage to believe even when it seems like foolishness, even when we only have our faith to stand on, even when what we're saying seems offensive. Help us to have courage. Help us to take your gospel even into a society that might not think that they want it or need it. But we still believe that it is the power of God, the wisdom of God that opens a path to salvation. Help us to have that belief and that courage even in the face of persecution or or marginalisation. We open our hearts to you, Lord. We We ask you to send your spirit to strengthen us, to sustain us, to give us courage. We thank you, Lord, that we can always rely on you, even when our own hearts might feel like faltering. We can always rely on you. Even when it feels like we're being persecuted or challenged or marginalised, we can always rely on you. Lord, I pray that we would have that courage to believe like never before in Jesus' name.